0: another episode of the Afterthoughts Archive, a digital diary for my future self. My name is Shiro, and in the spirit of correctness, I want to fact check myself a little bit and elaborate on two things I said in the last episode. One is about the reading challenge I mentioned. The correction is that it's called take five, not check five. In that vein, I want to remind anyone listening that you can use your library card to create a Libby account, which you can use to access ebooks and audiobooks for free. Ultimately, the Take 5 challenge is about reading at least five pages of revolutionary material. There's no harm in reading more. The other correction I'd like to make is that I mentioned a photo of LeBron James towards the end of the previous episode. I also said that he doesn't care for all Black people. And to clarify, first, it was a video. And it's of him holding Malcolm X's autobiography and being asked to speak about his biggest takeaways from the book. If you've seen the video, you you already know he says a whole bunch of nothing. I It was a whole lot of filler words and generic adjectives and nouns strung together. And the reason I said he doesn't care for all Black people is that at some point, I think he posted something online talking about Tory Lanez's music is fire, or maybe it was just a fire emoji. I don't really know. I just know that that's a clear indicator that misogyny has rotted some part of a person's brain. If They're able to, you know, I, I won't even, I won't even, I won't even get into that. So that's why I made that statement about him not being for all Black people and being better than that, because... He is an example of somebody who probably could say he's reading in the sense that he's looking at the word, but but nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. And that's if we're assuming that he even opened the book. I don't, I'm unclear on that. But anyway, that's not my ministry. That's not my business. I'm just in the business of facts. And so I needed to correct those and just elaborate so I wasn't wildly misunderstood. I'm gonna use that as a segue to kind of reflect about the way that i have tended to consume music and pop culture because when i really reflect on my life i realize that a good foundation of my music and pop culture knowledge happened retroactively in the sense that i learned many things after they happened like in real time when Aliyah and biggie were alive and They were at, you know, the pinnacle of their... Well, who's to say pinnacle? Because who knows what could have come. But, you know, they were highly revered and being played everywhere. I was not actively listening to hip-hop music. Music was played around me by virtue of growing up in Jersey City in a predominantly Black school. But I would say that that was more passive listening. I was engrossed in books and My Gigapet and more books. And just minding my business, like I've just been really, really good at minding my business for a very long time. So I just wasn't really pressed about the outside world in general, but especially not enough to find a radio and listen to it in my free time. That changed a lot with the internet. With the internet came the ability to stream and download songs and play them infinitely. And that really changed how I felt because... Like I mentioned in the trailer of this archive, I was in these limewired streets, so I went to being like fully analog book reading kind of kid to a, ooh, what are these cyber streets about? Like, I spent hours correcting the spelling and format of album titles, painstakingly sifting through album art that I searched on the internet to pick the least pixelated photo for the cover. And even as I think about that low key with my 2023 eyes, I'm like, that's archival work. And I don't know if it's just because I'm doing this archive or what, but I just feel like I'm deeply examining what I consider archival work. It has me deeping everything. It has me deeping everything because this archive was just started as a fun practice. I wanted to commit to something, but now I'm like, have I always been naturally drawn to archiving? Is this just what I was supposed to do without realizing it? Is this one of my life purposes? Question mark, question mark, question mark. And even kind of on a more topical level, thinking about how important engaging in the idea of archive making is in a time when we're seeing things be censored, things be taken off the internet because the oppressors want to maintain a certain narrative and how they're trying to do that by erasing the presence of this information this documentation from the internet and unless you have a population that is consciously thinking about getting this stuff offline or finding ways to migrate from these fascist aligned apps there's just a high chance that things can disappear so that is also definitely influencing me feeling like is everything archiving like is everything just about preserving (laughs) Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I'm not here to get to the bottom of that answer. Question? Bottom of that question. All right. Bringing it back to the point, I read an article recently, and my thought went from, have I always been drawn to archiving? To, were millennials just uniquely positioned to be cultural archivists? I'll name the article so that you get a gist of what I was reading about. It's called Pop Culture History 101 on The Ringer.com. And it talks about the VH1 series titled, I Love the Insert Decade here. And the article talks about how it was originally based on a show of the same name, but very easily surpassed in popularity in comparison to the bbc equivalent in 2002 i love the Fillin decade here averaged over a million live viewers in the 18 to 49 demographic across the season and in no time vh1 was franchising i love the 80s churning out sister series i love the 70s i love the 90s and i love the new millennium which oddly covered only 2000 to 2007 and premiered in 2008 there's also I Love the 80s Strikes Back, I Love the 90s Part 2, and 2014's I Love the 2000s, which was finally able to cover the decade in full. It also led to the creation of Best Week Ever, a weekly pop culture recap show that starred many of the same faces and ran from 2004 to 2009. In many ways, VH1's I Love the Blank series taught a micro-generation how to consume and discuss popular culture. If nothing else, that last sentence is what threw everything into motion for me because I was like, wow, here I was thinking I'm unique, I'm special, Um, when really I was most likely, and actually I believe that I was very influenced by series like the I Love the Decade series because I just became very used to Hearing something mentioned about a figure and then going to find out more information or hearing about a song that charted in a particular time and then going to look it up. I can't explain it. My brain just craves and holds on to facts. And so it just takes for me to hear something once. And these were the days before you could rewind TV. So if I'm watching the series, I'm like, you know, I got to I gotta take note of this. So when I get get to a computer, I'm going to Google this. Like, I want to know what's up. Um, It's the reason that I know Twista is a ventriloquist and not just that but he's also a competitive shooter. I don't know. Growing up, Outkast wasn't a group that I grew up listening to casually. My understanding of who they were largely came from pieces of media that I was exposed to but in very specific circumstances. As in, I don't have memories of my mom playing music around the house except For her alarm radio, which would go off playing smooth classic hits for morning commutes, they definitely weren't spinning Outkast. But what I do have memories of is a roundup of music videos and chart toppers being played at the end of the year, the DJ Earworm mixes that mashed up all the hits into one long track that still lives in my brain. And since I was deep in these limewire streets, as I've said time and time before, I definitely pirated one or two Outkast songs. So I had seen the clever art, I kind of understood their style was funky, but my knowledge of them didn't go deep. It didn't come from an older sibling playing a CD and auntie just spinning their discography casually. And I'm giving this preamble to say that I'm no expert on music or on Andre 3000. I don't claim to know everything here. All that I'm here to say personally is that learning about him through the internet in the past few years has been so endearing, which is something I rarely ever say about strangers. Like usually learning about strangers involuntarily means learning about the depravity of our world. Like it's never really a good thing. But when I was more active and present on the app formerly known as Twitter, I remember people's tweets going viral of photos of them and Andre 3000 just casually in New York City. Like it was not happening all the time, but it wasn't uncommon for somebody to just post a photo of Andre 3000 and them in the streets and he's holding a woodwind instrument, got a backpack, got a white tee, just on, you know, on a casual mosey with instruments and vibes. And that kind of became what I knew of him. And most recently he came out with his debut solo album and did a GQ video cover story, which, wow, what a blessing because he's he's so beautiful. He's so beautiful. Watching him speak, I'm like, it's just so rare that I feel this way about men, cishet men, but I look at him and I'm like, wow, yes, I would love to watch you speak. <laughs> this is pleasing to me. His, his frames, beautiful. Like what, I don't even know what, what geometric shape that is, but the frames were fly. And on top of that, the interview is happening in a laundromat, apparently one that he has frequented as a customer, which is part of why he is so endearing to me. And then in this interview, he mentioned being an only child and liking to be by himself and enjoying solitary time. And I said, wow, he's really me for real. He's a really... Like, I just... I was beaming I was beaming from jump and he kind of talks about his attainment of a different kind of normalcy and that has an asterisk which he's also aware of he's not walking in this delusion that he's just regular degular Joe Schmo he un- he understands just by virtue of people stopping him for pictures his life is not normal but it does deviate from the lives of many of his peers and the ways that they've had to basically pay for their celebrity with their privacy. And something that he said I thought really highlighted that is feeling is the only barometer for what I'm doing. I want to say that that's verbatim. But basically he talks about how authenticity is the thing that he prioritizes and he's always just trying to be at peace with the decisions that he's making And so he has to stay true to himself in order to do that. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) this is what life could be. It could be that we all just arrive to this conclusion and realize that that's the point of life. But no, 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 no. Capitalism, as usual, has to ruin everything. And I say that because thinking about celebrities having to give up their privacy, what that usually means is that they have to seek out a life that separates them from the general class of people from the 99% in order to have that safety because the thing that makes them unsafe is their notoriety like their their fame and their wealth their wealth makes them not just a public figure but also a target in certain circumstances and To pay for security means to be distanced. And so in that way, he doesn't feed into that because he's ultimately just looking to be authentic to himself. He's not looking to climb a ladder or follow a linear path of what a public figure is supposed to do or supposed to give up or supposed to accept. And that shouldn't be so radical, but it is, unfortunately, because of capitalism. It has brainwashed us and coerced us into normalizing People's lives as commodities. People have reality shows of their families as their stream of income, as the thing that keeps them afloat, which keeps them tied to the public's attention in order to make the money. But then that same attention is what makes them unsafe and needs and requires them to put distance between them and the proletariat class. Like, you see, it's capitalism is sick and twisted. <laughs> But anyway, as I was listening slash watching this very pleasant interview, I was just thinking about how our bodies and our minds have natural cycles and patterns that make us who we are. And Andre 3000 seems to have carved out a bubble for himself in this industry to exist in those natural patterns rather than give in to these binaries of like giving up privacy and commodifying access. He just kind of said like, I'm going to go to the laundromat. If you recognize me and you're cool about it, I take a picture with you and then do my laundry. That's, that's, (laughs) and he's, I don't, I still don't actually understand how he, how he has managed to do this so well. And I'm sure he couldn't write a masterclass because it's all about being him. The the reason he could do this is because he's only trying to be himself. And that That's my point. That's my point. The capitalism just doesn't allow us to move organically, exist organically, and just chase what we desire. I said it before and I'll say it again. One of my ultimate life goals is to be an adult with hobbies because what I want most for this world, I want us all to be able to live lives that are centered around us just chasing our best interests collectively and individually. Because I look at Andre 3000, and unlike many of his peers, he just seems so grounded in his intuition, so focused on being led by his intuition. Whereas, you know, a lot of people have to chase a check. They put themselves in positions where they so desperately need the next check. And that's not to say he didn't ever care about money. I think he actually does mention, like, you know, how his... Priorities have shifted from when he first entered the industry to where he is now. And I love that too, because it shows that we are all just human and you have to make conscious decisions to stray away from everything that capitalism feeds us. Because everything is a conditioning. We don't just wake up with the goal to be a millionaire. It's because being a millionaire has been normalized. Even though being a billionaire absolutely relies on exploitation, it's just been fed to us in a way that we're conditioned to think that that's a fair aspiration, which is literally not possible. Because in order to have millionaires, you need to have masses of people to exploit, meaning that we couldn't all be kings and queens in Africa. Some of us was the farmers, the medicine workers, the dancers, like everybody has their place and that's okay. It's another reason why capitalism is not sustainable. It also encourages hyper-consumerism. It encourages inauthenticity because it's telling you, don't do you, do what makes money. And that's why somebody like Andre 3000 with his Woodwind album or Khalees with her farm or Twista with his ventriloquism, all of these people remind me that even in the constraints that are often placed on us, we still get to chase our multi-dimensional truths as long as we remain committed to our true desires. And that makes me think about another timeline of my life if my mom had allowed slash encouraged me to pursue dance professionally. If you're around my age, you know, we came up in the era of the Honey movie, the step-up movies, you got served, stomped the yard, saved the last dance, the whole nine yards. So suffice to say, my heart was set on being a professional dancer. I was like, I'm going to be in one of these movies. I'm about to make a name for myself in the dance world. And I was big mad when my mom made it clear that she would not be supporting that. She did not come to this country to support any reality where I'm a dance major or a professional dancer. Like, God forbid. So I settled because what power do I have? And I just decided that if I couldn't pursue it professionally, I was just going to join every dance club on campus I could find. And in high school, I ended up on the step team, the belly dance team, and the hip hop dance team. And then my senior year, I was captain of two of those teams. That really just stemmed from me thinking like, if I can't attend LaGuardia and live out my performing arts dreams, I'm going to try my absolute best to seize every single opportunity to improve my craft. So I could be ready because, you know, if you stay ready, you don't got to get ready. And now looking back as an adult, I hold a lot of gratitude for not having pursued dance in that traditional sense. I'm very glad that I didn't try to climb the ladder of the dance industry. There's honestly just a lot of murkiness that bubbles to the surface when mixing your need for money and your love for something. And not only that. But dancers are absolutely disrespected on a collective scale. Dancers are viewed as bodies and what does capitalism like to do with human bodies? Yes, you guessed it. Commodify and devalue them. So, I find that dancers are often viewed as accessories to real artists, in quotes. Or, you know, you're told that the best you can really hope for in a dance career is to be a background dancer to big artists, only for these big artists to disregard and dismiss the impact that the choreography brings to their music. Like Nobody wants to give the dancers respect and it's very rare that you will know professional dancers by their names because there's not really space made for them to shine in that way. Which is part of why a show like So You Think You Can Dance was so life-altering to me and definitely fueled my idea of going to LaGuardia and becoming just an all-round, all-everything dancer. I wanted to conquer every style and I wanted to do it all. But looking at the industry now, in the midst of the ongoing pandemic, that industry has told people in so many ways that we don't care about you. Like Either you show up or die. We we don't really care either way. Already in terms of not having any care, protection, health anything for your well-being and then thinking about the idea that I like if I had chosen that life, my rent would be dependent on me repeatedly catching covid on tours, performing unmasked unmasked crowds. That is a literal nightmare. That is a literal nightmare to me right now. And so in that sense, I'm so grateful that that I didn't pursue it in that way. And I'm not saying I made the better choice. This is just what works for me. My job is separate from my hobbies, from my passion. Not saying one day they couldn't merge, but it's just not a necessity for me. Because literally, like I I can't even turn it off. I watch dancers and there's some dancers who I follow and I'm really invested in them just like, wow, every night on planes in front of crowds. And I haven't seen a mask once like that. So scared. What is that going to mean for your long term health? How long are you actually going to be able to be dancing before your lungs collapse, before you develop long COVID, before you can't stand up for more than 15 minutes at a time without getting woozy? I just with, and without universal health care, you're doing this without universal Healthcare. You know, sometimes you just have to sit down and take a minute to be so for real because that's not for me. That is not for me. And on that note, please go get your COVID shot if you haven't already. Reminder, this is not a booster. It's an updated vaccine, meaning it's created to account for the new variations that exist because we continue to ignore this pandemic as a society and allow it to mutate. My goodness, I continue to be flabbergasted and concerned at the amount of people who I personally know who act like they have no sense. Let's please act like we've learned something in the past three years. How are you posting data about COVID and COVID safety But posting a selfie on a plane with no mask on your face? Do you know that you've lost the plot? Do you know that you're disconnected from the facts? Because it it seems like you think you have the facts, but babes, it's airborne. You're on a plane with recycled air, with the airborne disease in the air. Somebody help me. Help me because I actually don't get it anymore. At this point, I'd rather people just tell me, hey, I don't care about my life and I'd like to continue living recklessly because that's easier for me. Instead of talking out both sides of your mouth, you're you're saying two different things and then doing two other different things. Like since the beginning of the pandemic, I feel like I've had to do continuous audits of the people who I've allowed into my life. And this year has felt like the most major shift because so many people have just left my life. And I feel crystal clear on the fact that the way I prioritize my values means I'm just not going to be aligned with certain people in the ways that we once were and that's just what it is. I'm not looking to change that. I'm not looking to teach anybody anything differently. I'm accepting it for what it is and choosing to focus on deepening the most aligned connections because I do have connections with people that I care about. It's just that it's gotten smaller and that's all right with me. It's not a numbers game for me. I just I, I just want to feel safe <laughs> around the people that I say I care about. I wanna feel cared for too. I know, it's a wild concept. So on that note, stay masked, stay black, and stay alive.